Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? And you know how painful it is. Esavel helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia Pacific from on and offboarding, procuring devices, to real-time IT support and device management. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. So check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. And so one way to think about crypto is like a group of people come together and they have a vision of the future and they're betting on that fork of the future through collective capital, right? So some folks think it's going to be L2s that's going to scale. Some people think it's Lana. Whatever it is, you get to bet on the version of the future that you want with your rest of your community. That's chaotic. It's a zoo of people collectively trying to decide what the future is going to look like. But the good news is, at least if the past cycles are anything to go by, almost all reasonable forks of the future get funded. And then it actually goes extreme where crypto dick butts are also getting funded and pictures of like the 18th dog token is getting funded. And so if anything, those who have been in crypto long enough seem to have benefited because I have certainly have not much newer to this industry, but those seem to have been long enough have seemed to have benefited from holding tight on what they believe about the world to be true and sticking to that vision over a sufficiently long period of time, which in crypto is potentially, what, four years, I guess. And that has been rewarded because if they worked on something for four years, the tech is behind them, there's a community behind them that sort of becomes a meme. So I don't know how to value them. Maybe it's all relative, but it's certainly not an exercise that I either have expertise in or even try to build one in. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung, and the rumors of Solana's demise are greatly exaggerated. With me today, Akshay Bidi, Head of International Expansion and Advisor to the Solana Foundation, to tell us about the most interesting developer activity for the Solana blockchain. Akshay, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Bernard. It's a pleasure and honor to be on your show. Yes, we met through a common friend on this and we talk about you have done a lot in helping to spur up the developer activity for the Solana Foundation within the region. You are also an angel investor in the Web3 space. But one of the things that during our first meeting, I also wanted to know about your origin story. How did you start your career? I started my career as a lawyer. I'm a lawyer by training, but I really didn't practice much law. As I was sort of graduating from law school, it was clear to me that I didn't want to do law and but I wasn't sure really what I wanted to do. Mostly I've chosen thing, parts of my life out of elimination. So I didn't want to do engineering or medicine. So that's why I chose to do law. Then didn't want to do law. So I did a lot of stand-up in the early days of when stand-up took off in India. And so I was just on the road and touring. And then the comedy store in, had just launched in Mumbai. And I was trying to break into that circuit and do the weekends there, Thursday to Sunday. And yeah, they ended up meeting the early Uber team at the time and they had a spot on the team. They'd hired two people. They're looking for the third to launch in Bangalore, India's first city for Uber and ended up joining as a community manager, which is basically both user side marketing as well as solving customer support tickets. And so if you had a bad Uber ride on a Friday night, I'd be the person on Saturday morning waking up and being like, so sorry to hear about your last Uber experience. We do our best to give riders a five-star experience since you didn't have one. Here's $20 credit that you can use on your next ride and hope to see you in Uber soon. That was me. So did that and then like grew in the company as the company was growing at a hyper- space as well and ended up running public policy and government affairs for the company for South Asia. And we sort of got policy passed at the national legislation level that legalized ride sharing, then moved to San Francisco to work on a project called Uber Elevate, which was vertical takeoff and landing electric aircrafts, basically drones with human payload and did policy for that project, negotiating with governments around the world to open up air corridors to pilot test these vehicles. And then after five and a half years, I sort of burned out and that business eventually, or that unit was eventually sold off to a company called Joby Aviation that went public by us back in 2020. But I left much before that. I sort of left in 2018 and was wandering <clears throat> the world to figure out what's next. And whatever little savings I had, I was trying to make the most of them and travel and most of, you try to find what's next. So I spent a bunch of time in Berlin, which is which I thought was going to be the next startup hub. But then you have a meeting with someone in Berlin in June and they'll be like, hey, we'll 
chat in August next to, hey, what happened in July? Well, it's like summer vacation. So it's awesome. I love it. They have so much respect for a sort of lifestyle that balances work and life. And that's, you never hear work-life balance questions there because that's stitched into your cultural tapestry. But anyway, I thought I had, I had, I wanted to give it one more shot with the startup grind that I had. I thought it would be too old after a while. And so I moved to Singapore, set up a company here to advise and invest in and sort of work with early stage technology founders, did a bunch of work with MPL, Cred in India in the very early days of their inception, Cloud Kitchens here, and then eventually ran into crypto and sort of got absorbed by that through our mutual friend, Balaji Srinivasan, when he moved to Asia as well during the same time as the pandemic. And that's how I got into crypto, eventually ended up meeting Raj when Solana was in the early stages of like this hockey stick growth curve. And that's how I got involved. I'll definitely get Balaji on the show at some point in time, but I actually got to know you through him. And then through you, I actually got Raj to come on the show some time back too. So this is a public thank you to you. I want to ask then, given that you have started with a law degree and then you did from Uber India, then you work on Uber Elevate because I was in Airbus and we were talking about the same concept called urban air mobility with the Airbus, the similar type of drone flying. And then after that, you go to Europe and have that summer vacation. I want you yeah. to get a sense of like, what are the most important lessons you can share based on what you have learned through your career journey? Oh, wow. That's a big one. I think a lot of the things that I've learned in my career are colored deeply by my experience at Uber. It was sort of a once in a decade, if not once in a generation like experience. These things don't happen very often where you go from like a garage company to a global behemoth like and $60 billion company at or whatever it was at its peak. And so I saw the company go from 300 people to something like 16, 17,000 people. And it was overwhelming. So I think a lot of my learnings have been colored by that experience. I'd say there's a couple of things. One is like, there was a culture of truth-seeking and meritocracy in in at least in the early days of Uber in a way that it was sustainable and it was not only interpreted, but also applied in a way that it was sustainable. And it meant that you were in service of truth, there used to be this idea that we would support the healthy stepping on each other's toes in the pursuit of truth. That works in a small setting where you know all of your colleagues and you have a personal relationship with them. Of course, as the company scales to 15,000 people, that, that cultural value doesn't scale. But certainly the approach or the idea that we're okay generating this friction to achieve, to be in service of truth was a very valuable lesson to take away because a lot of the big companies are usually slow or unable to compete with a nimble competitor, mostly because of politics and or bureaucracy. Either there's internal politics that's explicit or it's just a bureaucratic nightmare where there's like decision-making by committee. And often the the best decisions are the most ambitious goals are not achieved by consensus through a committee. And so it was really valuable to learn that lesson early on of sort of how to be truth-seeking. So I would say that's one big one. And the other is most people like sort of treat life as binary where it's either high risk, high reward, or low risk and low reward. And there's sort of no median option. I think the other thing I learned is like, there's always a secret third door and it's just up to you to explore that secret third door where you can protect your downside risk and still have sort of near unlimited upside and as an ex- in, in that context. But often things that are binary are not, and there's like usually a third door. And so I always view any frame that presents about like two options dead on arrival because there's always a third. So that's it's a really weird idiosyncratic thing. And the first one is probably a little bit more general. So given that you got through these career lessons, I know you recently started a podcast. You want to talk about that project? That you just started? Oh yeah, sure. Look, I got involved early on in, in kickstarting a sort of a community called Super Team. It was really like, we started it as a podcast to just talk about interesting ideas in crypto at the time. And it was sort of an excuse for us to invite founders to have a discussion with us because I don't think they would have taken a meeting with us otherwise. And so that eventually snowballed into producing a community on the back end of that because there weren't a lot of folks at the time talking about 
projects in a way that was beyond speculation and price movements and tokens and things like this. And so we said, hey, there's looks like it's this comment section is vibrant. We could probably move everyone into a Discord. And that's what we did. And so that's how Super Team was born. And over time, a bunch of exceptionally talented individuals like Cash and Neil and all the other core contributors now, Tamar, who's doing stuff in Germany, Guljan in Turkey, we have An in Vietnam, all joined to inspired by the vision of being able to build a community at the bottoms up level. And we can talk about what Superteam is. So, but that's really what the podcast is. We just call interesting people in crypto and tech and have a conversation with them. And that's how it started. Now we have a community off of the back of that where people meet to learn to code or to write content or just learn to level up their skills. We like to say learn, earn and build. So they first learn and then they earn by applying their skills, typically through freelance jobs, bounties, crypto native tasks, things like this. And then eventually they realize, hey, we can build something. And so ideally they go on to found a project or in very many cases, join as part of the early team that's building Mm. a project. Thank you for sharing this because I'm one of those people who are thinking about building something. And then I typically don't find a lot of podcasts that focus on the other one that I listen to it quite religiously, zero knowledge, where I really trying to understand some of the ongoing tech stuff, like even like building NFTs on Bitcoin, or even have a ZK rollout for Bitcoin or even other things with Ethereum and such. But today, the main subject of the day will be talking about the Solana ecosystem in the Asia Pacific. This is pretty under discussed, but you are probably the best person to talk about this. So Maybe to start, just to help the audience, can you briefly give background on Solana as a layer one blockchain technology and the applications they cover in the ecosystem? Yeah, so look, Solana is an exceptionally performant layer one blockchain that is meant to make all trade-offs in the favor of getting requisite information on chain, like at the speed of light, right? As close as you can get to that. And so that's sort of the design trade-off. It's to be a real-time settlement layer for financial information. And what it lends itself to is a blockchain that's super fast, exceptionally cheap, and more importantly, composability, right? It does so, it achieves all of this without breaking composability. Of course, there are no free lunches, so we can talk about the trade-offs involved in Mm. getting to something like this. But that's really what Solana allows you to do. It's a decentralized app store, if you will, where developers can build applications on top of one single layer that's all composable so that applications can talk to each other. You have an API killer of sorts where if applications can permissionlessly speak with each other and you can use them as Lego blocks to build unique applications on top of them. And so Solana's layer two or layer three is a manifestation of a rich application layer, not the execution Mm -hmm. environment, right? So that's sort of one way to think about this. I see. I actually never thought about it from the layer two, layer three version, but I thought just now you wanted to talk about the trade-offs. What are the type of trade-offs that Solana have to give? I think there's no perfect blockchain, by the way. Every blockchain has its strengths and weaknesses, regardless of what they say. So maybe you can talk about some of the trade-offs. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the trade-offs are that the hardware requirements to run a node are relatively higher compared to, say, Ethereum or Bitcoin. And I think the philosophical difference is you sort of design around a core, a single premise, right? And so the premise for Ethereum is everything is designed around the ability to run a node off of like commodity hardware anywhere around the world. And that allows anyone to verify. So that's sort of, it It almost borrows this property from Bitcoin in some ways because you want Bitcoin nodes to be ubiquitously run around the world. There's something like 10,000 nodes, right, that are on. And that helps keep the system honest. Okay. So that's, so all design trade-offs, everything's made in favor of that. So is Ethereum very slow? Okay, well, we'll scale using layer twos, but we're not going to compromise this attribute of being able to run a node off of commodity hardware anywhere around the world. We will not. And that has been what has been termed decentralization. And so Solana makes a bet on Moore's law paying off. It sort of makes the bet that, yes, you cannot run this on commodity hardware, maybe a very performant Apple laptop, a MacBook maybe. But over time, even if these are in data centers around the world, over time, you sort of can move the, because of Moore's law, you add more cores, you get more performance. And that's sort of been a consistent experience. You will be able to get performance at very ubiquitous prices over time. And the Solana architecture and the design trade-off is basically in favor of that. And what that allows you to do is have exceptionally performant applications built on the network. And 
it sort of eliminates in combination with local fee markets, and we can talk about what that is, it's basically dynamic pricing for blocks. We can eliminate the need, or at least the engineering need for layer twos. And so that's sort of how to think about Solana. One of the things that Solana did is to be able to onboard a lot of other developers that comes into the crypto ecosystem. For example, Rust language is actually pretty easy to onboard them as well. And then there's the other part of the speed of transaction. I mean, I have actually have still hold some Solana and actually like to do a lot of different DeFi, NFT purchase just to understand the ecosystem better. The speed is just amazing. And of course, your phone as well, which I'm trying to get my hands on because I wanted to understand, can we have an Android phone that is not under the two duopolies of iOS and Android as well? Yeah, but I'm pretty curious. And I think this is something that even sometimes I find it confusing. Can you distinguish between Solana Foundation and Labs and also talk about your role and coverage as the head of international expansion across different regions, including the Asia Pacific region as well? Yeah, sure. So Solana Labs is a for-profit private entity that's that contributes to Solana Network. Solana Foundation is a non-profit in, in Switzerland. It's like the foundation that helps upkeep or play custodian to the network, right, where it needs to. And the the sole goal of Solana Foundation is, is basically to sort of promote the decentralization, growth, and security of the Solana network and take all initiatives that may improve the health of those metrics, which include validator growth and supporting ecosystem grants and supporting other independent operators' projects to succeed. And so you can think of Solana as the blockchain as a city. And it's a city where you can, just like 200 years ago, you had mayors standing in front of barren land saying, hey, come move to our city and we'll offer you a high quality of life and a job and amenities like food, like water, electricity and high quality food, et cetera. You have now blockchain founders essentially who built this block space and they're standing before it and promising that the world's financial infrastructure will ultimately be run on this. And so they're asking projects and founders to move, developers to move to this new city and build the parks and the roads and the hotels and the, the equivalents of that, right? The borrow lending protocols and the multi-sig infrastructure and the payments infrastructure, et cetera, on, in this new city. And so you can think of Solana Foundation as just one of those entities contributing to that really as a city, as a city office, if you will, right? Getting the activities between various citizens who are moving there, who tend to be starters of these businesses and helping them succeed over time. Mm. So can you talk about some of like the interesting innovations that are ongoing from Solana during this period of time that you have seen that's like it's getting pretty interesting in terms of the developer ecosystem? Yeah, sure. So I think that the fundamental innovation of Solana is being able to allow for the composability of these applications and provide the speed and performance required to run a lot of these applications. So we're seeing a lot of cool innovations there. A good example of this would be something like the UXD protocol. Not only do you need an order book running underneath, so UXD is like a stable coin on Solana. It's a decentralized stable coin. What it does is it holds a delta neutral position of Sol. That's how it maintains PEG. And so what you need for that is an order book. You need something like Mango Markets, so you can hold your long position, and you need you need an options protocol, something like Zeta, to hold your short position, and that allows you to have a delta neutral position. And so that shows you that you can. That's a application built on top of other applications, right? Which is the elegance of this. And if you had sort of a fragmented layer, that would break. So that's an example of something that's innovative. Obviously, there's like a large section of folks that are very bullish on gaming. I don't personally sort of game. And so I do, I'm more of a follower than sort of a leader in that category. And so it's probably not, I'm not the best person to talk about that, but certainly gaming and on-chain assets for off-chain games feels like a category, category that's growing. And games that launch with minimum necessary on-chain infrastructure are probably going to be the ones that end up winning because these fully on-chain games tend to be a pipe dream with the amount of throughput you can do right now. You know, I was listening to a podcast earlier where they were talking about how if you launch a game on chain fully, it requires like 100,000 transactions per second. And so one chain could block, clog up the entire network. And maybe you can link your yeah. listeners to that podcast. But th that's, so I think, I like the, I think the, a lot of the application in 
has optimized for maximum possible decentralization, which is trying to get everything on chain as like as much on chain as possible. I think the next generation of applications will choose the exact opposite, which is minimum necessary decentralization, right? Mm. Which is only the stuff that would benefit from a shared state and potentially liquidity on chain. Mm. A good example of that, I guess, step in, which is like the star example of these something that takes advantage of the properties of some having a secondary market for those NFTs and providing that shared state. I think one of the key interesting thing when I think about crypto, because I also invest across the world, I would think of DeFi in New York and I'm thinking about in Asia it's more gaming, NFT driven and maybe very little more infrastructure SaaS related. I want you to Give me some understanding about how do you think about the Solana ecosystem, say in countries like India, Indonesia, and Vietnam, how the developer activities are and how does the Solana Foundation and Labs support these developers there? I see a lot, of, I follow your Twitter account, so I see a lot of times where you post up very interesting, exciting developer activities. That's how I know Solana is still well and alive. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, look, I cannot speak for labs. I'm an advisor to the Solana Foundation and all of my activities are in my advisory capacity to the foundations, particularly and specifically focused on international expansion. What I can say is there is this mental distinction I make between Web 2 and Web 3, even though I hate using Web 3. It's sort of useful in, in what I'm about to say. Web 2 was about a user acquisition, Right. But Web3 is about producer acquisition. And that is like an important insight for us, which is to come to the first citizens you attract to a city. Going back to my city, it's because building a blockchain is not like building a company where a company makes all the products and it ships them to customers and customers are simply passive consumers of those products. In a city... People move there to produce. You know, somebody's building a hotel, somebody is holding down a job. And so they're producers. And in its company, the product team is building everything. In a city, you have a multiplicity of actors who roughly have aligned interests to help the city grow, but have their own business interests to, right? Like uh, whether it's UXD protocol or mango markets or whatever, they're all the, their own companies with their own cap tables, but they live in and thrive in Solana City, right? And I think the way we think about international expansion is to go to every country and hire the top 1% of producers into the mission of building Solana City, right? Recruit them into this mission by leveraging their skills to write code, write content, maybe they're marketers, designers, developers, whatever they are, pull them into a private community that has access to exclusive opportunities to help build the city. So the first inhabitants of any city tend to be producers. They then attract users. India, Vietnam, Turkey, all these places that we've gone to have in a very deep technical bend strength. And those there's a high quality engineering culture in these countries. And I like to say previously you needed to go to the US to get like an H1B visa, but today you have the TCPIP visa. You can just download a browser extension in and you are now you can start making money in US dollars. This is actually pretty profound because the path to wealth for a lot of people from at least the country I come from was to just move to the US and get an H-1B visa, get a job there, and then invest in the capital markets of the United States. And so that's how you got wealthy by investing in the stock market. The access to capital markets and your proximity to it sort of ultimately decided how wealthy you were going to be or your access to wealth. And oftentimes, proximity to that capital market or access even ended up being physical proximity to the US. But today, that has truly decentralized because of crypto, because it's essentially like a labor marketplace where people can live anywhere around the world if crypto is remote by default. And so if you have some skills and you're really good at what you do, you can live, stay back in your country and work on or for a crypto project and earn in capital assets, oftentimes, which are in the tokens of those projects and US dollars, right? Because USDC is the native default currency of the crypto economy. And so I think that's a very profound shift, which hasn't fully materialized because of how early everything is. But I think in five years from now, we'll look back and be like, that was the moment where the access to Silicon Valley jobs got truly democratized. It wasn't just Silicon Valley companies setting up offices in India and Singapore and giving jobs to people. It was instead projects that were global and remote by default from day one 
allowing folks in Singapore, India, Vietnam, Turkey to join them as early as the Facebook employees that joined them in Palo Alto many years ago. That's an interesting point because the underlying thing about whether you call it Web3 or crypto is that whatever you do, there's an embedded capital market that sits in within and is globally accessible. For example, I mean, a lot of people probably didn't know Etherscan, the development team is actually in Malaysia or in Singapore, there's I think Solana.fm, that's right. So it's quite surprising, like people don't realize that actually this is really truly decentralized and global. But I want to get back to the point, like in terms of the communities within the India, Indonesia of the Vietnamese market, or even Turkey for that matter, do you usually organize things like developer activities, hackathons, or do you have like events? I know there's a very big Solana event that you conference that usually happens over the year. Yeah. So developer activities are for us around three areas as I described earlier, learn, earn, and build. You know, learn component involves creation of content, university tours, engaging developers who are engineers who may be looking for a shift in their career, either because they're working for a tech company and they want to be at the bleeding edge of the next wave of tech, which often many people consider crypto is, or it might be to engage young developers who are out of their engineering schools and figuring out how to get their first job. So learn is really about that. Also, Solana is built on the other trade-off I would say is like it's it has a relatively higher barrier for for to entry for developers than it does for say AVM because it's a it's built on Rust. Rust is a relatively harder language, it's lower level. And so you don't need to know Rust today because a lot of it is the complexity is abstracted away. But still when you read your first smart contract, it depends on whether it's an EVM, it's like a solidity contract or it's a Rust contract. And that sort of shapes your view of how things, how these things are structured. Again, I am unfortunately not an engineer and I don't code, but this is my synthesis of all of the conversations I've had with developers who I talk to every day. And so I think that's definitely a trade-off. So it's learn and then it's earn, which is if the goal of a company is often to draw corporate boundaries and draw boundaries between teams to organize themselves well, right? The best companies have tight corporate boundaries around them and then they have tight boundaries between teams and swim lanes. Whereas for a crypto project, it has to figure out how to erase corporate boundaries between them and the community so that you can keep your team small and then have the community play a generative role in building the protocol. Often it's through some incentives, right? Another category of that we haven't talked about that's succeeding on Solana is decentralized physical networks, right? Enabled through crypto networks or crypto incentives, whether it's a helium or hive mapper, right? And and so these are physical infrastructure networks and they're really like complex to build out. But if you really think about it, Bitcoin was the first proof of work network where the miners had to do solve some mathematical problem to get access to the Bitcoin. Here they're set they're either mapping streets in the case of hive mapper to get access to those token rewards to help build this network of decentralized uh, street-level mapping around the world. Or it's something like Helium where they're setting up actual like telecom infrastructure in a decentralized way. A anyway, so 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 for us, it's like that's, it is to help find those opportunities to earn for this high quality talent that is learned because we do believe that the true proof of learning is earning. If you learn something, it was only valuable if you applied it in the context of a market and the market rewarded you for it. Okay, so then it's building. Once you transition from earn to build, your sort of learning is driven through content Earning is driven through community because you meet other people who are also trying to earn by applying to grants, missions, which may be like short-term, say three to four month projects, or even bounties, which could just be a weekend project, right? To building, which is basically capital. So it's content, community, and capital. So it's sort of where we spend a lot of our time or learn and build. And so that's the funnel as we think about it. And for every, say, thousand enthusiastic learners, you get maybe 10 high quality earners, exceptional earners who are like really good marketers, designers, developers. And for every 10 earners, you maybe get one exceptional builder who will go on to start a company. And as an example, Solana, there's a social protocol on Solana called Gum. Guess where the founders from India who had just happened to earn a few bounties and then decided, hey, actually, I know how to work my way around this ecosystem and ended up starting this protocol, social Legos protocol. Interesting. So what's a typical day like for you? How do you work and energize communities wherever you go? Do you travel? Do you yeah. Talk to people? So, 
I don't travel much unless it's really necessary, but we have fully local bilingual teams who are community leads in each of these countries that we're in today via super team. And super team is essentially a, the community for the top 1% of Solana operators. And so that's how super team has played a complementary role to the Solana foundation where they have been the extended arms and legs. Super team is not a company. It's basically a not-for-profit community of for-profit entities, right? So there's no treasury. There's no take rate. If super team has bounties, it all goes to the contributors, but there are for-profit entities within super team. They may be the founder of a protocol for gum, for example, was started by one of super team members. It may be somebody who's earning money by contributing to a protocol or holding down a full-time job. It may be an advisor, an investor. So there are tons of people who are in Solana City, and they have a club for the top folks from their country that they can hang out with and talk to and network with and do business with. So you have Shed as a very interesting example. They come from India. Are there any other interesting projects that have arised out the Asia Pacific through even like the super team engagements and your work with the Solana Foundation itself? Yeah, I would say one, I would give one other example. Like, again, this is a hard to pick fa- favorites, but the good part is I'm just an advisor to the foundation and I've spent a lot of my time. I'm not really held to the standard where I can, where I have to list them all. I think I would, I would say ZAMP is an, a really interesting project. Again, I'm not an investor. I'm not an advisor. I don't have any stake. And I think ZAMP is super interesting because they are building an integrated fiat and crypto bank account for corporate entities. And it's by a founder who has the track record and credibility to be able to set up both the banking relationships and the fiat world relationships, as well as a team that he has built now to do, with, which has the agility to do crypto stuff. So his name is Amit Jain. He's, you know, he's former head of Uber Asia, and then he was a managing director at Sequoia. But that's a one company I think that will have a massive impact in helping companies, crypto companies that are finding it harder and harder to have banking relationships, to have meaningful access to crypto and fiat banking. One interesting use case of something like that is imagine being able to pay contractors, right? You pay in, say, Bitcoin and somebody else receives money in Turkish lira and all of the conversion is abstracted away. It happens on the back end. You can pay in any currency and the receiver recipient receives in any currency. That's exciting because that finally makes crypto and fiat fungible and the off-ramp on-ramp process very seamless. So yeah, that's, that's one I'm looking forward to see launch. There's a couple of others in the loyalty space that I just can't talk about right now, but I think that's probably going to be a massive category where maybe one thing people would benefit from studying is airline loyalty programs. For instance, did you know that the market cap of United Airlines, this is probably a little bit dated, fluctuates on a daily basis, but at the time it was $10 billion and its loyalty program was worth $21 billion. Wow, you know that. Uh, right. Same for Delta, same for American Delta. Delta's loyalty program is worth $26 billion, where Delta Airlines itself is $20 billion. American Airlines, $6 billion market cap, $25 billion market cap for loyalty programs. Wow. Right? And so when you actually study the loyalty program business, you realize, oh my God, this is basically a central bank. They print their own currency. They find secondary buyers for it. For instance, Hertz will contract with whatever American Airlines and reward the Hertz customers with American Airlines points. Where do they get their points from? They're buying it from American Airlines on a secondary market through a private contract. And so all of these credit card companies, right, that allow you to spend your the American Airlines points or United points or with any retailer in the credit cards network, those retailers are accepting points, but those points are useless because without the credit card company actually buying them back for a price, which essentially means that the credit card company is like bankrolling those coins. And so you're like, oh, wow, they're a central bank, essentially. B, they're not taxed because it's seen as a customer cashback and not as a post-purchase cashback and not as an earning. And it's this fascinating that's worth tens of billions of dollars that is just sitting in plain sight and could use capital markets to make them more efficient. And you open up the secondary market where it's not just Hertz buying and credit card companies buying, it's anybody can buy, right? Let me pause there. That's a rough idea for the cool things you could do in loyalty that cuts across industries and and uses maybe some NFTs and infrastructure to make Mm. this cool. 
I, I think I'm very excited to hear about that. I, I know you will talk about this in the future. I'm going to switch gears a bit and focus a lot on about thinking about crypto and have a much more deeper conversation on that. One thing we know is like Solana is like L1 blockchain similar to Ethereum, Avalanche, or even the BNB chain. How does the chain now differentiate itself from the other L1s? There, that differentiation will be some combination of being able to retain an organic ecosystem by virtue of having applications that only run on Solana and are sort of almost purpose-built for Solana. And a good example, as we discussed earlier, is order books. A specific example would be OpenBook Dex, which is a fork, a community-driven fork of Serum, which was the the order book product on Solana earlier. And so that's an example of something that can be done only on Solana. Now, when I say only on Solana, now there are more performant chains and there are a bunch of other competitors. There's everything from Monad to Aptos to Sui, and we'll see where that ends up and how this whole game plays out. But I think it'll be a combination of retaining high quality projects that can sort of are purpose-built to succeed on Solana, combined with the network effects that the composability of Solana affords you. And so it's not just performance, it's what other off-platform experiences will your users go through. And if there are no other applications on another chain, will they have the same amount of things to do when they're not on your platform? One of the one of the critical considerations for a developer should be this idea that your users are users of the ecosystem, not just your users, right? The fact that they can take their assets out and put it into another wallet and have this experience on a different platform, this is the idea of users owning data, means, and the fact that their assets are in their wallet means that they will have off-platform experiences that is still in ecosystem. So it might be off your platform, but it's still intra-ecosystem. And so you should optimize to be in an ecosystem, but if they go off your platform and they're using other applications, they still have as much of a delightful experience as they did on yours. And so it's important to find a group of peers that are building applications of the same quality that you aspire to do. So I think let's call that the ecosystem coefficient. I'm quite curious now because how do you see like the layer two chains coming from Ethereum, like Optimism and Arbitrum, and even like zero knowledge EVM side chains like Polygon. And then this year, I think they are going to come up with Pro Dang Sharding. And how does that shape in terms of competition to Solana in terms of transaction speed? But I don't think the transaction speed is really the core issue. It's also thinking about how different chains are going to end up maybe specializing because I see a lot of NFT activities on Polygon, but not maybe not in the DeFi side that much. Yeah. Well, look, it's hard to predict how this all plays out when pre-launch, a lot of them are pre-launch or they've launched and they're sort of low adoption, let's say. But I think there are a lot of considerations that are outside of speed and cost that affect the success of a blockchain. That's like stuff like liquidity, the network effects, like what kind of developer tooling exists? Are they developer friendly or they're hard for new developers to enter? Are they stable at high at high usage? Are they stable? Is there a meaningful grants program that can deploy capital towards citizen acquisition or producer acquisition? Everything from indiscriminate token airdrops, right? That's the most wasteful allocation resources to exceptionally bureaucratic committees that run grant programs, which means no capital is going out. And one way to think about the grants program is it's the potential energy of capital that is meant to be converted into the kinetic energy of labor. And the team that does it has to do it at the lowest sort of transaction cost with the lowest amount of energy expended to, to do that. And so there's a lot of things that go into this. And then this is not even touching on topics like ideology and what impact that has on making people stay back in an ecosystem. You know, Bitcoiners had this thing of hodlers of last resort or where it doesn't matter if it's gone down 95%, they'll hold it to zero. And they were sort of revolutionaries. And all you could do in Bitcoin was buy and hold it. That's all you could do. But Ethereum and Solana and so on have now things you can do. You're builders of last resort, right? So once we had this FTX flush out, the folks who were left out were basically builders of last resort. They were high conviction folks continuing to build an environment of low liquidity, low venture funding, and ambivalence or almost like 
no main, mainstream user participation, right? So I think those are sort of the key determinants to for a chain to succeed. So it's hard for me just purely on like a technical basis to compare. I guess like I've heard arguments where it's like, okay, well, it breaks composability or it fragments liquidity if you have other layers. But who knows? These, there may be one layer too that ends up being the standard and then that can sort of uh, subsume within its ambit all of the liquidity and like composability and become the de facto layer. So it's unclear how it plays out. It's way beyond my pay grade or understanding of a uh, technical understanding of how this plays out. We stand to benefit from this competition where it is competition. Sometimes it might be specialization, so it might not be competitive at all. But I think the industry stands to benefit and we like to be agile and responsive from a community perspective. I'm speaking for the community. The Solana community is very agile and responsive to new information and new actors. And so I'm very excited to see how that plays out. So what's the one thing you know about Solana and the Web3 market that not many people know? Solana has... It depends on the day, but on most days, the highest number of on-chain users or, well, on-chain daily active addresses. Okay. That's something worth knowing. So, because I know you're also an investor in different crypto Web3 companies. I think one of the questions I typically ask people who are into this space, like myself, is when you think about funding mechanisms, right? How would you, what's the mental model thinking about when a Web3 crypto company come to you and say equity token or mixture of both. Where does your inclination lies? Yeah, that's a hard question. So I try and sort of limit my the scope of my activities. I'm usually like all in working on one thing at a time. And so I don't really actively angel invest in the way that angel investors do where they're networking and per- pursuing deals and getting deal flow actively from founders. Typically, I would invest in cases where something ends up in my inbox, either a connection through a friend or it's a DM from somebody I've been interacting with on Twitter. And they're like, hey, by the way, we're building this. Do you want to take a look at this? And that's interesting. I'm sort of lawn fussy, a very passive investor in that sense. I usually do very small check sizes. So I don't really opine on the token versus equity thing unless I am asked specifically to advise on this. In those cases, I have generally erred on on saying equity until product and timing token to market cycles. And that's roughly how I think about it in terms of like, I'm much more interested in sort of what valuation the token launches at, what is the flow, things like this, because a lot of the crypto industry is sort of enamored by this IPO pop effect that you have in traditional markets. And the easiest way to achieve that is to do like a high FDV and low float or a low float that leads to high FDV because if there are like 50 tokens trading and 10,000 people trying to buy those, you sort of drive the price up. But then on the back, you have like 2 million tokens lying. And so that comes, that supply comes into the market. And so then, so it, you have an initial pop and then it's down only, where it's like, it's a price discovery, but to the downside and it's like 99% down and then another 90% down. And so that sort of makes the chart look really ugly for a lot of these crypto projects, which is why most people believe that altcoins are scams and that's that's a reasonable characterization. Instead, I think projects may benefit from thinking about ripping off the bandaid early and launching to quiet, right? Where they're much lower market caps, they're almost launching to apathy, but it allows and in fact attracts high believers to come and participate in the ecosystem and get token exposure at lower valuations where the risk reward is actually meaningful for these early people who are taking a lot of risk in exchange for being able to like find an early group of believers and creating a base of holders who are actually organic, right? So yeah, I don't really have a view on token versus equity, but when it comes to tokens, I do have view on like how it should be done. And my hope is we see more versions of fair launch-ish like stuff. I don't know what that looks like. I'm not against venture funding. I think that's good. But as venture funds become more successful, they raise larger and larger funds. And crypto projects don't have the appetite to accept that much capital. And so if you're running a $200 million fund, it makes no sense for you to invest a half a million dollar check into a company. So you inflate the valuation of the company so you can deploy two and a half million dollars into it, except that that forces that company to eventually list if they're going the token route through a much higher valuation because what sane person would list below the valuation of their last round. And so it's you're on this treadmill constantly trying to justify a valuation that probably is not justified. So complex question. But given that we 
just talk about the valuation question, right? Given the recent meltdown and we are currently in kind of a bearish market, depending on the price of the day, valuations have gone down significantly. How does it evolve your thinking in terms of thinking about valuations for these companies? Yeah, I don't know how to value a lot of this. I think it's a function of liquidity and memes and and it's really hard to predict either of those two things. But in this chaos of like the memes and the liquidity moving, chasing the memes, we get to build a version of the future that we want to see. And so one way to think about crypto is like a group of people come together and they have a a vision of the future and they're betting on that fork of the future through collective capital, right? So some folks think it's going to be L2s that's going to scale. Some people think it's Lana. Some people think it's any of the, I don't know, some new move chain, whatever it is, you get to bet on the version of the future that you want with your rest of your community. It's not just a venture from betting on the future. It's like, and so that's chaotic. It's a zoo of people collectively trying to decide what the future is going to look like. But the good news is, at least if the past cycles are anything to go by, almost all reasonable forks of the future get funded. And then it actually goes extreme where crypto dick butts are also getting funded and pictures of like the 18th dog token is getting funded. And so if anything, those who have been in crypto long enough seem to have benefited because I have certainly have not much newer to this industry, but those seem to have been long enough have seemed to have benefited from holding tight on what they believe about the world to be true and sticking to that vision over a sufficiently long period of time, which in crypto is potentially, what, four years, I guess. And that has been rewarded because if they worked on something for four years, the tech is behind them. There's a community behind them that sort of becomes a meme. So I don't know how to value them. Maybe it's all relative, but it's certainly not an exercise that I either have expertise in or even try to build one in. This is a very authentic and honest answer because sometimes people ask me to justify and then I'm like trying to Thing through, it's a degree of belief. How much degree of belief you want to have to believe that if everything goes right, what are you going to bet on? I think that there's something pretty interesting going on now. There is ChatGPT by OpenAI now spurring you know, venture capital and investors away from Web3 and getting into generative AI. I think, quite curious, what would be your advice for builders who are still continuing investing their efforts in Web3 and crypto? Yeah, just find a .ai domain and uh, say you're at the cross of crypto and AI and you're good. I'm kidding. No, uh, that's no, probably you, you, what's see, you can do the generative AI NFT sale yeah, marketplaces. Yeah, oh. that's, that's just, it's just going to happen, isn't it? It's inevitable. It's just going to be inevitable. I don't know that I have advice for folks who are continuing to build. I think that if they are still building, that's just proof of conviction on some level. And I'd say... From everything I'm seeing and things I've studied and my sort of experience in a pre-crypto world, sticking to your conviction and just seeing that through a reasonably long enough period of time, which in crypto is not that a lot of time. One cycle is four, four years. So it's probably a good idea. It's going to feel, it generally, it really it sucks. I didn't realize how euphoric a bull market is and how insanely like in dire straits it feels like in a bear market. But I think that the folks staying back and building are already ahead of the game. It's just about surviving till whenever the first breakout apps start to emerge and they show you a glimpse of sort of the next cycle. But I think it's the just survive. I'm I'm doing this. I'm trying to apply the same advice. And so I'm in this with you guys. I'm not saying this is someone who's lived through cycles. I certainly am not. I went through the Muff Gox area in the last crypto winter. So I've actually already gone through two two winters and I don't see anything different from this two actually the last one was worse because there was no applications. But I think because we went through a pretty turbulent year with the implosion of the FTX collapse, right? What are your reflections on the impact to Solana and also generally how the collapse have, have gone on in the past year? Not relating to any specific event, any specific chain, just all these things have been ongoing. I think it is imperative to have a mobile native on-chain experience that abstracts away the complexity and the irreversibility of self-custody that exists today. That's really the only true long-term answer. And if you look at all of the blow-ups of the last year, they've all been some version of an opaque form of, or uh, there've been some derivative of opaque financial structures, largely off-chain, and they benefited from the opacity of this TradFi structure and the lack of regulation of the crypto world. 
And so that was a powerful cocktail along with a bull market that made everyone feel like they're God. And, you know, it's this triangle of death that all of those folks got caught in. And I don't know that I have any reflections that are that are deeper than that, other than my resolution to help try and contribute to a world where there are mobile native crypto applications that help users protect their funds without counterparty risk at the same time, protects them against themselves if they lose their keys or something, you know? As Akshay with the line goes, right? Not your keys, not your crypto. That's right. <laughs> okay, last question then. What does grit look like for Solana internationally? Hundreds of self-sufficient communities built on Solana using the various applications to provide a bespoke experience to all of their community members. Because I think crypto ultimately is about communities and these products are just tools at our disposal. And I think the atomic unit of organization in Web3 is a community. And so my hope is large numbers of organic community members and communities emerge and blossom on Solana and they are the users, they are the producers, and it's truly a city that's thriving on its own merit. And it isn't, importantly, monopolized by any one or two large players. It's got thousands of contributing producers, millions of users when everything is said and done. So there's a good way to close. And in closing, I will only ask the two quick questions. The first one is any recommendations that have inspired you recently? Uh, for a podcast, yeah. a book, yeah, anything? Yeah, books, yeah, anything. Well, it's not an inspiring book, but I've been reading this book called Cryptopians, which is by Laura Shin. Yep. Right? Also the um, host of Unchained podcast. Yes. <laughs> and I think that it's an incredible uh, book because it sort of tell, it gives you a summary of the history of crypto and how crazy this industry has been and how small it started. And for all the talk about decentralization and lack of central authorities, it is riddled with actions of many central actors who are key to getting this bootstrapped. So I love that. That's my current read. Okay. How can my audience find you? Twitter? Uh, oh, easy. <laughs> Twitter. Yeah. Just add Akshay BD. Okay, you can definitely find us on YouTube and anywhere else through any podcast platform. And of course, I would like you to subscribe to our newsletter and also to the new YouTube channel. Actually, many thanks for coming on the show and I really appreciate the quality time that you have spent in having this conversation and I look forward to speak to you again. Thank you so much for having me.